Let's get this sports podcast party started, all right? The J Reels Podcast. Why don't you wait until July 1st to make an announcement? What a disgrace. He can rack up all these numbers in October, November, and December, but what really counts is let me see this in January. The sports rebel without a pause, delivering fast-paced, jam-packed sports talk like no other. Listen, I gotta call it as I see it. He is not a good player. I'm sick and tired of having to deal with the disappointment of this franchise. When does it stop? And yes, another winter that I can sleep in peace. Coming correct, direct, and in full effect. Let's get it. This is the J. Rills Podcast. Welcome aboard. What is happening, my good people? Greetings. How are you? How's it going? How's everybody doing out there? Hope everybody's doing well. Feeling fantastic. You know the drill, people. Another day, a new week, getting close to the end of the month. I have construction on the outside, next door to me, above, below, but we're going to get through it as I deliver everything that's happening in the world of sports here on the latest edition of the J Reels Podcast. This is your host, J Reels. For my first timers, welcome aboard. And for those who've been banging with me now for 151 episodes, not sponsored by Bacardi, of course, I welcome you guys back again Monday, August 24th, in the year of our Lord 2020. The J Reels What's the Deal segment. What to expect on this podcast is as follows. The NHL second round has begun, but not without a little controversy, especially when it comes to the Vegas Golden Knights, where goalie Marc-Andre Fleury, his agent, posted a photo which sent shockwaves not only throughout the bubble up in Edmonton, but throughout the NHL. I'll get into that later on as to the effect that that may have not only for him in this upcoming series with the Vancouver Canucks, but also down the road. I'll also get into the baseball season, which we're now halfway through it. That's right. The sprint is just about halfway complete. We got another half to go and a lot of different storylines, including the Mets having an issue now with COVID-19. It looks like they may be in the clear, but you'll get my two cents on that. In the NFL, Earl Thomas being released, the former All-Pro from Seattle and now of the Baltimore Ravens, punching a teammate on Friday, being released yesterday. Is he worth signing if you're another team? Does he still have enough left in the tank? You know I'll dissect that situation later on. Also, the greatness of Dustin Johnson as he wins another tournament on the tour, second to Tiger Woods over the last 15 years, but he's only won one major. So we'll break that down later on. We'll also get into my hero and zero of the week. And before we dive into the NBA, which will start us off here on this podcast, I know just a couple of minutes ago I mentioned about construction outside, inside. I'm recording this from my kitchen, so therefore I do not have soundproof walls for whatever the reason The construction that's going on outside, that's not as bad. You may hear some drilling and hear some noise in the distant background. But for whatever the reason, somebody must be building a Noah's Ark, whether it's next door, upstairs, downstairs, whatever it may be. So if you do hear some banging, it's definitely not on my end. But with my voice and the way I'll project, hopefully that will surpass all the extraneous noise. And you can just focus in on what it is that I have to say about what's going on in the world of sports. So without further ado, the tip-off is the NBA And if you're Adam Silver, and as I like to say, the powers that be in the NBA offices down on Park Avenue, they are doing backflips and cartwheels because the first week has been a major success when it comes to all the different storylines, all the different game-ending clutch threes, as we saw yesterday with Luka Doncic, and so many other storylines that are emanating from the bubble down in Orlando that they only hope that week two of the first round gets even better. Now, mind you, you did have a couple of sweeps in the process, and we're going to talk about the teams that have left the bubble, which will be Philadelphia and Brooklyn, which are interesting storylines when we get into the offseason. But before we do get to that, 
unlike the NHL, which will be the following segment, and they have not had a good first round, the NBA certainly wants to piggyback off of everything that's happened here in this first week. And we also got to remember, once the restart began, we had those eight regular season games. We had, of course, the playing game between Portland and Memphis. So the time was finally ripe, and I'm sure the basketball fan and maybe even the casual or diehard sports fan was ready for some postseason basketball. Well, after this first week, they certainly got more than what they've ever bargained for. And when you bookend both from Monday when the postseason began and yesterday, you had a lot in between that you could chew on and certainly dissect and regurgitate when it comes to what happened on the floor in the association. And we could go through the early series first, the two sweeps with Boston sweeping Philadelphia and Toronto sweeping Brooklyn to the point where Toronto scored 150 points last night. And we understand that the Nets are undermanned. We know who's not in the lineup and who hasn't been playing and who's certainly not even in Orlando at the moment. But we'll get to both Philadelphia and Brooklyn later on as far as their off seasons because those are two of the more intriguing teams going into next year. And I understand the focus is all on the playoffs right now. But because of the way the seasons had ended for Philadelphia and what's next for them and Brooklyn and what really lies ahead in their future are going to be fascinating to say the least. But with those two teams out in the East, you're looking at a 3-0 series lead with Miami and Indiana. So that looks like it's going to close out. And that's one thing. The East has not been as thrilling as the West. Now, unfortunately, these series have gone out of hand to the point where you have a lot of 3-1 deficits or in this case, 2-1 deficits that can be 3-1 by the end of tonight. Because you'll have Orlando, Milwaukee playing a game four today, as well as Portland and the Lakers. But the play that's been going on between whether it's Dallas and the Clippers, that's a series where Dallas could actually could be up three games to one right now. If it wasn't for the outlandish ejection of Kristaps Porzingis, and mind you, he probably shouldn't have gotten his nose dirty considering he had a technical and he was on the verge of getting another one, in which he absolutely did. But that was a disgrace for the officials to go ahead and eject the Mavericks second best player and when you look at how this series has played out I thought it was going to be a cakewalk despite the heroics of Luka Doncic and remember he turned an ankle in game three and was questionable for game four and then Porzingis had the injury bug and a lot of people thought this is where the Clippers will take off and even with the Mavericks having a big lead down the stretch in game four it wasn't until the overtime at 133-132 where Luka hits that step away three, which I think is a walk. I know that James Harden, I've gotten on his case, and it's very questionable uh, the way those step back threes can be interpreted because it does look like a slide step. It does look like they take that extra step, but it never gets called. But with the way Dallas has put themselves back into the series, and it's a best of three, we understand there's no home court involved, so it's not as if the series is going back to L.A. where the Clipper fans can unite and try to push their team to a victory at the Staples Center. But the way that series is shaked down, that has been fascinating to see whether or not that Dallas can get to the next round and upset. And that would be a monumental upset if the Mavericks somehow, some way find a way to win the series. And then what started off this whole playoff binge was when you look at game one between Utah and Denver and how Utah late had a four-point lead with about a minute and a half to go. And then you had the misfortune of a one Donovan Mitchell who had a phenomenal game last night and we'll get to that in a minute where he scored 57 points in that game one but had brain lock as he wasn't able to get the ball past midcourt with the eight second violation timed out 
And then Jamal Murray hit a three to cut it to one. And that pretty much propelled the Nuggets to win a game one. And where there was no excuse for Donovan Mitchell to say, hey, that's all on me. It was my fault. And rightfully so. And we thought that that would have been damaging at that point because with Denver being a three seed and Utah being a six, Mike Conley out of the bubble, Utah doesn't really have a lot of firepower other than Donovan Mitchell, but they certainly proved us wrong. And when you look at the way Utah has played since then, they've won three straight, including yesterday's game where Donovan Mitchell scores 51 to topple what Jamal Murray did in scoring 50 for the Nuggets. And here we are where another upset could be in the making. And if you listened to me last week, I didn't think that a Utah upset over Denver was going to be big in the grand scheme of things. Not to say that Utah and Denver are pretty much equal. And you could actually say Utah has been better and it could have swept the series. I didn't think it was going to be anything worthy of an upset because even going back to breaking down the first round and how I even thought that if the Sixers would have beaten the Celtics, that would have been the bigger upset as far as the three six is concerned in comparison to out West. But now you have a situation where the Jazz could win a game five tomorrow, move on to the next round and certainly break the hearts of Nugget fans because as we've seen throughout the whole year, despite the fact coronavirus interrupting those four and a half months in between, Denver was certainly a solid team. They were a team that a lot of people thought could be a two seed. They ended up being a three seed. And right now, they're just one game away from being eliminated in this postseason altogether, which would be just an awful job. Uh, There's no way to cut it. Even if they go to seven games and lose, to think that they actually have come this far with the players that they have in their team, they have two prolific scorers. You have an all-NBA player in Jokic. Murray, as we've seen throughout the course of this series, has put up points in a big way, even though yesterday in a losing effort, where Utah doesn't have that type of firepower, as I mentioned before. And here they are just one win away from moving on to the conference semifinals. So you have that to deal with. You also have Portland and the Lakers where the game one for Damian Lillard hitting 36 foot threes, making big threes in the fourth quarter, not finding an answer to solve Damian Lillard and even Yusuf Nurkic at the end of the game. And the Lakers where a lot of people, you can listen to all the talk shows and you know who you, a lot of people I'm sure watch on the worldwide leader of sports, and particularly on that channel, where a lot of people thought that, oh, this is it. The Lakers are going to fold. The Lakers may not even get out of the series. If they don't, it's an absolute joke. And my man, Paul Pierce, I love him. But he's come out and said that if LeBron doesn't make it out of this first round, you can't consider him to be a GOAT, meaning greatest of all time. And the thing that drives me crazy is that people jump to conclusions after one game And I understand it's about ratings and I understand it's about entertainment and trying to say something that's just borderline off the wall. But for people to think that the Lakers weren't going to come back in the series, it just shocked me. And I said it last week. I thought that the Blazers, their clock was going to strike 12, that the clip that Damian Lillard was on wasn't going to continue any longer. That's not to say he was going to shoot six for 18 and only have, you know, 20 points. But at the same time, everybody jumped on the Blazer bandwagon, and understandably so by the way they performed here in the bubble. But the Lakers, despite having LeBron and AD and pretty much nobody else, they were that much more superior than what the Blazers were to have. And I get the Blazers have a lot more balance when you have CJ McCollum and Zach Collins, who's now out for the rest of this postseason with an ankle. But you had Nurkic, as I mentioned. You have Carmelo. You have players on the team that could be a little bit more balanced. 
But at the same time, when you have two of the top seven players in the league, and even though maybe one of those top seven are playing in Portland, but they're an eighth seed for a reason. And right now, it is shown here in these last couple of games where the Lakers blew their doors off in game two and then came back and won a game three where right now they could have a commanding 3-1 lead after tonight. And what would make me think that if Portland, and we understand when you're an underdog, you have to win those odd number games. They won game one. All right, they got blown out in game two. They need to win game three. And we get no home court advantage, so you can't really rely on having that facet or having that factor when it comes to playing in a seven-game series. But now they're going to have to win this game tonight. And if they don't win it tonight, that's not to say they can't win the series because we all know down 3-1 against the Lakers, they're not going to win the series. And even if they do win tonight to make it 2-2, they have to win game five because chances are, even if they were to lose a game five, then they need two chances to win both games as opposed to winning a game five where they're going to have to just win one of the next two. And as it is right now, they're down to one. And if they lose tonight, you could just pretty much kiss their season goodbye. And I thought it was going to be, I gave the Blazers two games. I thought that they were going to play tough. They were going to be a pain in the neck. And they have definitely shown that in games one and three. But to do that over the course of seven games, and you figure that the Lakers and Frank Vogel, they'll figure a way out to do their best to contain or even slow down Damian Lillard. And if they can do that, They'll definitely be in fine shape. And right now, they're in the driver's seat looking at a 3-1 series lead. And we'll see how that all unfolds later on tonight. And then the other series out west is OKC in Houston. Still no word on Westbrook's status as far as his quad is concerned. But the Rockets do have a 2-1 series lead as they were up 2-0. And then the Thunder came back with a victory in Game 3. So tonight, another pivotal Game 4 to see how deep that series could go. And that's the one thing you've had so far in this postseason. You have had a lot of this drama, especially from Dallas and the Clippers. When you look at games one and games four, the game one against Portland and the Lakers. And now let's see where the series goes here tonight. I didn't mention Orlando, Milwaukee. That was a stunner because Milwaukee looked like they were flat. At least the Lakers were competitive in game one against the Blazers. But the Blazers just made key three after key three. They couldn't miss in the fourth quarter. And with the Bucks, you kind of wondered whether or not they were going to be in this lull considering they had not played well since they, since the restart. And then now they've won two games in a row and you would think they're going to be off and running here. And how I looked at both the Bucks and the Lakers game one losses where everybody thought the sky was falling, I thought that this was a good thing for them. To get punched in the mouth early, to get that wake-up call, to look at it and say, all right, we got to get our act together. Let's go right out of the gate, game two. And both teams did so. And then now they have two one-series leads as both teams will play today. So to me, everybody was thinking that the Lakers and Bucks, oh boy, here we go. It looks like they're not going to even get out of the first round and hear all the different storylines and all the proclamations and everybody coming out and saying that. that. Even more so for the Lakers than the Bucks. But it's one game. One game does not make a series, people. This isn't the NFL. Obviously, this isn't the NCAA tournament where you lose one game and that's it. And barring any major injuries to major components on each of those teams... They'll be fine. And lastly, and I've said it again now one more time, these teams, the Magic and the Blazers, and despite the Blazers' brilliance in the bubble, they're eighth seeds for a reason. So that's what we got there with the NBA. And as far as moving forward, we can't get to the next series. We're looking at Boston and Toronto matching up in a 2-3 in an Eastern Conference semifinal, which is going to be just an all-out battle. Right now, they're going to have enough rest. 
Both teams are playing as well as they possibly can. We know about the Gordon Haywood injury, who is going to be out four weeks with the ankle. Kemba Walker was brilliant here in this opening round. Same for Jason Tatum. They just played stupendous in disposing of the 76ers. And then Toronto, what could you say? They have pretty much picked up where they left off going back into the postseason last year, winning a championship and knowing that a lot of people, not that they're sleeping on them, but they may not be getting the full respect that they deserve considering there's no more Kawhi Leonard. But here they are on to round two where they're going to play a Celtic team and it's going to be tough to predict. I know there's a part of me, obviously my heart's going to say the Celtics, but my head may say different. This is going to be a long series, I would think. I don't think this is going to be a four or five gamer. Obviously, this could be six and possibly even seven games. I know this may sound like a reverse jinx, but I'll say Toronto in seven. And the reason why I say that is because championship medal, Nick Nurse is, you have to say right now, is better than Brad Stevens as far as the coach is concerned. And we know Stevens and his culture and everything that he brings to the table as far as the Celtics are concerned. But you think they'll do just enough. They have some bodies that they could throw at Jalen Brown. Kemba Walker, as these series now get deeper and the games are every other day, how that knee's going to respond. It's good that they'll have a few days before they get started here in this uh, second round, but you got to wonder about his health moving forward. You always have to hold your breath with Kemba Walker, at least for the time being. And with everything that Toronto has shown, and mind you, the Nets are undermanned. You know, it's not as if Kyrie was out there, Spencer Dinwiddie, Not that DeAndre Jordan's going to make that much of an impact, but you know what I'm saying. Now there's going to be a whole different beast, and this is why I could see this just being a seven-game series. But if I had to choose with my head, I'm going to say Toronto only for those things that I mentioned. Championship pedigree. Now, Kyle Lowry's hurt. That you also have to keep in mind. Who knows how long he's going to be out, if he's going to be out. But that's something that you got to definitely factor in. And when you look at him and Kemba Walker, those are going to be two key components as to how far these teams go in this next round. So definitely got to keep that in mind. But I think Toronto, just with that championship medal, Nurse maybe pulling a little rabbit out of the hat. And Toronto has actually played well against the Celtics here over the years, especially in the last couple of years. So I'm just going to give them a slight edge and win the series. Now, as far as the Sixers and Nets are concerned, the Sixers just had a very disappointing ending to their season. We all know that a lot was going into the season based on last year losing to the aforementioned Raptors in that Game 7 with the lucky bounce from Kawhi Leonard's game-ending and series-ending buzzer beater. And with everything that cast over this organization, going back seven years with the process, bringing in Brett Brown, all the draft picks that they've had over the years, now finally getting all the pieces together, trading for Jimmy Butler, trading for Tobias Harris, The process finally arriving and then losing the way they did in the last postseason coming into this year, knowing that this was not necessarily a boom or bust year, but there were a lot of people that picked the Sixers to go to an NBA final. And now you sign Tobias Harris to a five-year, $180 million deal, which right now looks just absolutely abominable. You also look at Jimmy Butler going to Miami where his team has a 3-0 series lead and maybe Butler was the guy they should have kept and let Tobias Harris go only because... He has the chutzpah, and maybe just like he did in Minnesota, not that I know anything about this, but possibly the same situation in Philadelphia. They didn't want to bring him back because Butler probably would be a little bit abrasive to the younger guys on the team, especially not knowing the mental and psychological 
fortitude of a one, Joel Embiid, and even Ben Simmons for that matter. So maybe Butler was not going to be the right guy from a chemistry fit to re-sign him as opposed to them re-signing Tobias Harris, who does have talent and has shown that he can perform at a high level, but the consistency of that is like the wind. One day it blows strong, and other days you're just suffocating. And then, of course, they end that trade with Jimmy Butler. They bring back Josh Richardson, where we know they do not have a perimeter threat as far as shooting is concerned. And what happened? Richardson pretty much was a non-factor in this postseason. And right now, if you're a Sixer fan, you have to be shaking your head from the top on down, wondering what Elton Brand's going to do as his team is hamstrung with all these contracts between Simmons, Embiid, Harris, and the Horford contract is even looking that much more abominable. And knowing that the process has come to a point where they need to produce and go deep into postseasons, even more so bring back a title to Philadelphia for the first time in, what, 37 years, which now is going to be 38 when you're looking at 2021. And how they're going to do that this offseason is going to remain the biggest question. This Elton Brand comeback. A lot of people think that because of some of the moves that he made, signing Harris to that big deal as well as Horford, knowing that Horford in this particular setup, the way the roster is, it's just another big body out there where they can't space the floor. They don't have enough shooting. Horford does provide some offense. We know he's there for rebounding, toughness, and also defense, but he's not a guy that's going to wreck a game or put his fingerprints on a game as far as the score sheet is concerned. We've talked about Embiid time and time again. I'm not going to pick on him, but Embiid really needs to get himself focused this upcoming season, not just from a physical standpoint, but just to be that beast that he should be night in, night out. The coach, as we've said, I understand this may not be his fault, and who knows if ownership is going to look at this and say, well, Ben Simmons was out. We didn't have our full slate, our full arsenal of players that could have pushed the Celtics to maybe more than just four games. And they may give him a pass. If I was the owners of the 76ers, he'd be long gone. I'd find somebody else. And before you say Greg Popovich, because a lot of people think that he may be rumored to go to Brooklyn to team up with Kyrie and Kevin Durant. Remember, Brett Brown was an assistant under Greg Popovich. So the last thing he's going to do is take a job in Philadelphia, no matter how stacked the team is. And again, because they're hamstrung with their cap, who are they going to bring in? Who are they going to, unless they make a trade, and there may be a lot of rumors about Ben Simmons going elsewhere, and it may be time to break that up. Who knows? But that's where this offseason is going to be fascinating from the Sixers standpoint to see whether or not they could either rearrange the team, rearrange the front office, or even the coaching staff to try to get them to a promised land. And as far as the Brooklyn Nets are concerned, This was a season where a lot of people didn't expect much. Yes, the hype of Kyrie and KD, even though Durant wasn't going to play. But Kyrie gave you 20 games this year. And a lot of people thought at the time, possibly behind the scenes, getting former coach Kenny Atkinson fired. Not playing his fellow friend and teammate DeAndre Jordan to start over Jared Allen. Which to me is a mistake. I mean, if you're a coach, you got to start the young Jared Allen who is a presence in the middle. I get that he may not be a presence on the offensive side of the ball, but we know he can rebound and certainly defend among the best of them. He's very underrated and certainly under the radar when it comes to players that are rim protectors in this league. 
But there's no way you could put DeAndre Jordan. I don't care how many years in the league. And he did get a first-team All-NBA a few years back. But Jordan is not the same player that he once was. But with that being said, now this offseason for the Brooklyn Nets, it's going to be championship or bust. Pretty much similar to what's going to happen 90 miles down the road in Philadelphia. Because Kevin Durant will be back 100% and healthy. You would think Kyrie Irving will be 100% back and healthy. We'll wait to see what happens with guys on the team, whether they're going to re-sign Joe Harris, whether Spencer Dinwiddie, I believe he already got his extension. There's a few more years. Uh, I think he had a three-year deal that he signed prior to last year. The Karis Leverts of the world. You know, all these different players that make up this team. So now they're going to have to look ahead and be one of the favorites to come up on top here in the Eastern Conference. As you hear the drilling going on in the background. Here we go. So once again, my apologies for that. But now Brooklyn has to look at the next level here. And I get that we're going to have to wait until an NBA champion is crowned. But the Nets now have to have their sights set on next year and wondering what pieces are going to fit. As Kyrie said, as he broke down in one of his press conferences right before COVID, how, yes, we do have some of the pieces in place, but we do need a couple of others. And he cited certain team members, whether it was DeAndre Jordan, obviously Kevin Durant, Garrett Temple, Spencer Dinwiddie, Karis LeVert, but he left out Joe Harris. He left out Jared Allen and a couple of others, which made you think that maybe these are guys that shouldn't be here, that they could be packaged to bring in somebody else to secure this roster and go for it all next year after the hype and hoopla of last offseason, bringing both of these guys into the fold in the borough of Brooklyn. Now we're all going to see what the GM, Sean Marks, is going to have up his sleeve It's going to be fascinating from both ends. And I get that people right now aren't focused on the Sixers and focused on the Nets. But the only reason why I bring them up is because now both of those teams, and in particular the Brooklyn Nets, because not having Kyrie for a full season and Kevin Durant, those teams are on the clock. And granted, we still have three more rounds of NBA playoffs to go and a draft and a short offseason where Adam Silver now said that the December 1st or somewhere around December start of the next NBA season looks like it's going to be pushed forward and it should maybe the NBA should push it to Christmas Day although it'd be unfortunate because the NFL has a game on Christmas Day which is on Friday this year you'll have the Saints and Vikings play that Friday I believe at 4.30 so right smack in the middle of the day even if the NBA were to decide to have their opener and start their season on Christmas Day it's going to be interrupted by the NFL, unless they start on Christmas Eve, which would certainly be unconventional. But at the same time, that's something to worry about down the road and definitely not for today. And then a couple of quickies with the NBA before I move on. The T-Wolves win the lottery. They will get the first pick. A lot of people think the first pick is wide open right now. Whether your name is Anthony Edwards out of Georgia or Obi Toppin from Dayton, even LaMelo Ball. A lot of people think that he could be a top pick. Followed by Golden State, they'll get number two, Charlotte, Chicago, and then Cleveland round out your top five. And if you're wondering, Nick fans, where do you fall in the draft lottery? You are eighth. And I'm going to say this, the Nick fortune has to change. And with the new hierarchy, Leon Rose, World Wide West, and the people in the front office, hopefully that they do enough homework and get the right guy to plug in at number eight, because as we've seen time and time again, And with this draft being wide open and not knowing who you're going to get, maybe they could finally find the point guard that they desperately need. Or even more so, the winger that they desperately need. Team them up with R.J. Barrett. 
Barrett's more of a guard anyway. So you put him in the backcourt with whomever you have as a point guard that you're able to draft, great. Or if not, you get that wing player, that 6'8", 6'9", guy. And sorry, Kevin Knox, it looks like it's not going to work out here. But guess what? Maybe he needs to be challenged a little bit. So with all the misfortune that the Knicks have received over the years, including last year, having the worst record and being able to choose third, and even though choosing third got you R.J. Barrett, but you missed out on Zion Williamson and John Morant. So who knows? Maybe this could be the year that the Knicks fan, as much as they can look at and say, oh, eighth pick overall, who are we going to get? There's going to be nobody. Maybe the gem falls in their lap and could be that guy that could rock the garden for the next 10 years. So I know it's easy for me to say because I'm not a Knicks fan, but you get the gist. And then lastly, I, I have to bring this up because this was an absolute disgrace. The video that came out regarding that altercation after the NBA Finals with Masai Ujiri, the president and GM of the Toronto Raptors, where the cop pushed him a couple times and he had his credential and it became a fracas there right before the ceremony of them raising the championship trophy over their heads. And you got to side with Ujiri in the sense that that happened because he was black and here he was wearing a suit and just trying to slowly make his way to the court. It's not as if he was making a beeline. He was slowly just making his way to get to center court. And thankfully, Kyle Lowry had to drag him out, but not before all the pushing and shoving and just the derogatory words said by that cop. And it's just a disgrace. And you would only hope that the cop does get some sort of punishment here because obviously it was not right. And it was certainly unjust. And to see that video come out a year later, and even the police force trying to cover it up, saying that, oh, well, your jury was the one that was the instigator or that he was the one that caused psychological and physical harm to the police officer, who I don't even know his name and I could care less. But that's just an absolute joke. And please, that guy just needs to be sent off to another planet somewhere because the way he handled that was beyond unprofessional and an absolute disgrace. So I just needed to throw my two cents in on that because uh, that's something that you can't unsee and it just makes you shake your head and think what possessed this cop just to not only tell him to back the F up, but also to shove him a couple times. I mean, geez, the guy's ready to pull out a credential. You know, it's not as if he's trying to run out to the court like a madman. So I just had to throw that in there. Now to turn our attention to the ice and what's happening there in the NHL, as I said at the top, not a great first round. You had no Game 7s, I think probably for the first time, I don't know since how long, but you always have a Game 7 in the first round. This time you did not get that, none of these series were in doubt, and it was indicative because you had 5 of the 8 first round matchups go 5 games, the other 3 go 6 games, and like I said, they were not even in doubt. Yes, I get that St. Louis came back to make that series 2-2, and we know the Blues, former Stanley Cup champs, but at the same time... Once Vancouver took a 3-2 lead, again, no home ice. You probably thought to yourselves, maybe they'll go to the seventh game. But Vancouver showed who was boss and won that series. And now you have a situation here in the second round. And just to kind of go through these first round, I mean, really, do we talk about Tampa exercising a few demons there after what happened last year with Columbus? I guess you could talk about that. The Islanders, who were up 3-0 at this time last week, they did lose a game 4 where Alex Ovechkin scored two goals, but then bounced back nicely as they win that series in five. The Bruins disposing Carolina. Montreal and Philly, although Philly had to sweat a little bit. Remember, they were even at 1-1, but then the Canadians showed a little bit of fight, but not enough for them to upstage the 
number one seed Flyers. And then out west, if it wasn't for Joe Pavelski's overtime goal in game four, the Stars may have not made it out of the first round because they were down 2-1 in that series. And with the overtime goal in game four, they were able to win the next two after that. So they cruised in beating Calgary. Arizona and Colorado, Colorado just blitzed them in those last two games. I mean, blew them out to the total of 14-2 as far as goals are concerned. Chicago did stay off elimination, but Vegas was able to prevail there. And like I said, the first round was, eh, it wasn't really anything to jump up and down or go crazy when you don't have a game seven or don't, you may have had some overtime games and some thrilling overtimes, etc. But when you look at the series on a whole, it wasn't anything that you're going to lose sleep over. Now, as we get to this round, you already have a couple of games in the books, well, three games in the books where the Islanders and Flyers will start the final of the four series that are left tonight, and I'll get to them in a minute. We'll start off with Dallas and Colorado. They were the first game on Saturday where Colorado, a lot of people think, could go to a cup. Their goalie, Philippe Grobauer, got hurt. Injury not disclosed. You know how the NHL is. Doubtful for tonight's game, too. And Dallas, now with four wins in a row in their pocket, they have a lot of gas in their tank. Dallas looking to be the upstart team. And Dallas, we know they're a formidable team. But Colorado, let's see if they can dig themselves out of an 0-1 hole tonight and get that series even at 1-1. And staying out west with Vancouver and the Vegas Golden Knights. I'll get to the controversy in a minute. Last night, they were able to win 5-0. Robin Leonard, the former Islander, and then he was a Blackhawk this year, traded over to Vegas. And remember, they faced each other in the first round where a lot of the Blackhawk players during the Post-game handshake after the series win against the Blackhawks there in Game 5. A lot of people gave Leonard Dapp. We know he's had a long road for him. Buffalo Sabre, battling addiction, depression. Played on the Islanders, had a very good first year. Didn't re-sign him. There was a lot of controversy about that too. The Islanders offered two years, but he went to Chicago for one. And then him being traded from the Blackhawks at the deadline to Vegas. And right now we have this goalie controversy where even on the heels of a 5-0 victory where Leonard got his first career playoff shutout, over the weekend, the agent for Marc-Andre Fleury, and he's a guy who has cup experience. He's won three Stanley Cups in his career, but mind you, the back two that were in Pittsburgh in 2015 and 2016, he wasn't a full participant. Matt Murray was your goalie that took the I know in one of them, I believe in the second one against San Jose, that was Matt Murray's Stanley Cup. And the first one may have been Matt Murray as well. Not the very first one when he was back in uh, the 2009 series against Detroit. But the back-to-back where they beat Nashville and San Jose. Or maybe another way around, San Jose and Nashville. So here we are with Fleury and his agent posting a photo on Twitter with Fleury standing in net and then superimposing a knife going into his back with the name of the coach of the Golden Knights, Peter DeBoer's name on it, and where Fleury had to ask his agent to take the photo down. I mean, now how bad is that? Now, was it calculated? Was it something that Fleury was aware of? I know he had a press conference. I didn't get to watch it. But Fleury, I'm sure he probably said all the right things. Wasn't going to upset the apple cart. The team has been playing well. I'm sure he's got to be a little bit bitter 
knowing that Leonard came here midseason and now he's pretty much going to ride the sucker out barring injury or just him falling apart. And I'm not saying personally, just on the ice. And Fleury is a guy, if you've watched him over the years, we all know he is a top goalie. But you got to wonder sometimes between his ears and his psyche because we've seen him being pulled in many playoff games, especially when he was a member of the Pittsburgh Penguins. We understand that two years ago, he took his team to a Stanley Cup final against the Washington Capitals. Didn't come out victorious in that. And he's had a very good career. We know Fleury has been a guy in net for a long time and has won big games. But he's also been soft and given up a lot of cheap goals throughout that process. And if that's what Coach Peter DeBoer sees in one Robin Leonard, bigger target, obviously a lot more efficient, I guess, in his eyes. And now you have this situation with Fleury where he's probably going to have to bite his tongue and play the good soldier until he gets his opportunity. And it's, it's tough luck. What could you say? We all know the Stanley Cup, your goalie is like your ace starting pitcher. And you got to ride that sucker out until the wheels come off. So was it right for his agent to put that photo out? I'm sure if Fleury knew about it, he probably wouldn't have even thought about having his agent do something like that. Or maybe because he thought his agent was doing it, that's not on Fleury, that's more on the agent. But it still looks bad because of the guilt by association. So just terrible on that part. And then you had the Bruins in Tampa last night to go to the East. I'm going to say this. Now, they won 3-2. to two. I know Tampa had a couple of goals in the third period and one late to make it a little interesting. But the Bruins hung on to win 3-2. to two, And they take a 1-0 series lead against Tampa. But watching... The last period and a half of that game just goes to show you, and you know, time for me to get on my soapbox, people. It's just an absolute travesty how this game is played now. And I'm going to call it the three J's. All you see in these playoff games now are jostling, jabbing, and joining. And I understand you're not going to see a lot of fighting. You're not going to see a lot of fisticuffs, although we've seen some early on. But when you have guys like Victor Hedman, and we all know he's an excellent offensive defenseman, but when he's trying to stare down other players on the team, and we get that Hedman was what, 6'5", 6'6", he's a tall guy. But has this guy ever fought on the ice in his professional career at all? And I'm talking about fight. I'm not talking about wrestling. I'm not talking about going down to the ice, swinging sticks. No, no, no. I'm talking about drop the gloves and let's go at it. Has a guy ever had a fight in the league? I would think not. And if he has, despite him being 6'6", he is not that type of player. And also when you have guys... We've seen it from the beginning of time. The agitator. A guy like Brad Marchand who is going to get under the opponent's skin whether your name is Claude Lemieux of hockey yesteryear or Ken Lindsman, Dino Cicerelli, even Esetikinen. And I get that he does scrap and we'll get into fights more so than the guys that I mentioned. Because Dino Cicerelli was a notorious stick swinger. And Esetikinen was an agitator to no end. But either one of those guys couldn't fight to save their life. On the ice. At least Claude Lemieux and even Sean Avery, who I can't stand, at least they would fight, but at the same time, they would fight against players of their own size, etc. They're not going to go after the heavyweight contender on that particular team, but as we all know, the endangered species that are now the NHL heavyweight enforcer, they would annihilate guys like that. And they certainly wouldn't go anywhere near in their direction to start a fight with. They'll fight a guy that they know they could pick on. They'll fight a guy that they know that they could beat up. But when it comes to let's say a Ryan Reeves or a guy that would just wipe the ice clean with them, they won't even be in anywhere near their breathing space. And that's what I like to see. 
because when he, all these stare downs and all this this jostling and jabbing, you know, cross checking each other, and it's it's a disgrace. And obviously, you got to blame the NHL for that, but I just don't like to see it. Right? Would I like to see three hundred minutes and penalties and a box score every night? Oh, of course. But again, we don't have those type of players in the league anymore, and that, that I understand too. So you're going to see a lot of this silly jabbing and the jostling and the joying and yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, please, it's just it's a disgrace. It just is. And two other things. Let's talk about Islanders Flyers real quick. Now, the Flyers are a little bit deeper than the Islanders. Now, they weren't able to score as much. I don't know if that was a product of their offense. We know Jacob Voracek had a huge series and is playing at a high level. And Sean Couturier, who is more of a defensive guy, but certainly has been a leader on that team for a long time. To me, the key to this series is who's going to crack the cheat codes from a defensive side. We know the Islanders and their style defensively and how they play. It's not as if the Flyers have the Legion of Boom or Legion of Doom, whatever that line was back in the day. I think a Legion of Boom of the Seattle Seahawks. But the Legion of Doom, which was Eric Lindros, Michael Renberg, and John LeClaire, the Flyers do not have the offensive talent like that when they made it to a Stanley Cup final, what was it, 23 years ago. But you have to wonder... Which team defensively is going to crack under the pressure, to me, is going to be the big story of the series. I know the goalie Carter Hart and the Flyers is getting a lot of pub. We know the Islander goalie, Semyon Varmalov, he's a guy that I thought was going to be like Yaroslav Halak 2.0. And he's performed well here in this postseason. But to me, the better defensive team is going to win this series. And the Flyers are a little bit deeper. The Islanders have their work cut out for them. And if they go through these droughts, like the Flyers did in the first round, I think the Islanders could come out victorious here. But with that said, I'm going to pick the Flyers in six. Maybe I'm using this reverse jinx when I look at Toronto and Boston and now here with the Islanders. And listen, I picked the Capitals to win in six games. So talk about me being wrong. And I wasn't even thinking about reverse jinx then. But now, I guess since I put it out in the universe, watching the Islanders get smacked around and losing five games. So maybe I just should have gone back to what I did back in the first round and just kept it as is when I'm talking about the Islanders losing in six and the biggest opening round upset in the NBA would be Philadelphia over Boston considering no Ben Simmons and being shorthanded for them to beat the Celtics right now would uh, certainly be an upset and that wasn't the case. So now that I'm putting it out there, let's see how that uh, unfolds. And then lastly, I have to talk about Mike Milbury and his comments. And I get that with him being the GM of the Islanders all those years and all those trades that he made. As much as I could kill him on that, you have to look at the front office, the ownership, that they should have let him go a long time. He had nine lives in that job. But that's 20-some-odd years ago. And as a player, we know how tough he was. To me, he wasn't Terry O'Reilly. He wasn't John Wensink. He wasn't of that ilk. Yes, would he fight? He absolutely would. But he is not... In the pantheon of brewing tough guys when it comes to dropping the gloves, being willing, and doing whatever it takes. The Milbury was not that type of player. Yes, he would go up in the stands at Madison Square Garden with Peter McNabb, you know, bashing a shoe over a guy's head. But I didn't look at Milbury as a guy that, oh, geez, I got to stay away from him because he's just going to pummel me through the ice. No, he was not that guy. So, the comments that he made the other day, and I read some columns where they were just vehement saying that, well, Milbury's right. There is a lot of truth to what he said. And that may be true. But he didn't have to single out women in particular 
Because as we all know, there are tons of distractions besides women. And in this climate, in this day and age, if you're going to do that, you may be heading to a career suicide. Now, Milbury, on his own volition, did step down, wasn't going to be a part of NBC anymore. He did apologize, bad judgment, etc. But for some of these columnists to look at this scenario and say that he's right and almost to 100% back up Milbury to the point where, yeah, what do you expect? Women can be the... No, you can't do that. Sorry. There's plenty of other distractions besides women, and especially if you're in a bubble, there probably could even be more distractions because you're 10 times as bored. So whether or not you're playing video games all night or getting drunk in your hotel room or maybe even watching porn. That's right, I said it, porn. And I'm not trying to say that all the players or some of the players or any players watch porn, but you get my point. All Milbury had to do was say, well, sometimes with not being in a bubble, you can have plenty of distractions that could take away from your focus or your discipline or whatever it is as you prepare for a postseason series. That's all. And nobody on the NBC set is going to say, well, what type of distractions are you talking about there, Mike? Then you're not going to do that. You could pretty much come to your own conclusion as to what he means by that without actually saying it. And because he said it, he was wrong. 1,000%. But I just boggled my mind by reading some of these writers. Uh, as a matter of fact, I don't know if it was Bleacher Report. Oh, no, it was WEEI in Boston. So I guess they were pro-Milbury, pro-Bruins. So they probably looked at Milbury as getting a, an unfair shake there. But I'm sorry, once again, if you're going to single women out to be a distraction, then uh -uh. that is bad business, my guys. So for Milbury to step down, and he rightfully so with grace, didn't look at it to shrug his shoulders. And we all know Milbury is very outspoken when it comes to certain things. He was outspoken with the scenario regarding Tuka Rask. He's also been on the front line when it comes to the way the game of hockey is played as opposed to yesteryear. And again, not that he was anywhere near Terry O'Reilly or any of those tough guys of Bruins yesteryear. But again, he was a guy that knew that the game was a man's game back then, not the way it is today. And for him to say that was completely out of line and was just unfair towards women. And again, he could have just made it a blanket statement about not having to deal with any distractions on a whole as opposed to just one in particular. So that's the scenario there with Milbury. All right, so let's turn our attention to the diamond. Now we got dogs barking in the background. So not only has this podcast become one of uh, drilling and hammering and buzzsawing, now we're going to have some dogs barking, which aren't mine, by the way. So please, once again, I apologize for any extraneous noise other than my big, boomerang, loud, obnoxious voice. But as far as baseball is concerned, can you believe that we are just about at the halfway point of the season? That's right. The halfway point is pretty much arrived for most teams. We understand that the Cardinals are nowhere near the half point, halfway mark. Same for the Marlins and even for the Mets, which we'll talk about right now. Because on Thursday, it was revealed that a player and one of their staff members had come down with COVID. As to where they had to stay behind in Miami. The rest of the team flew up into New York. The first game of the Subway Series had to be canceled or postponed because of the unlikelihood of maybe other players being infected due to coronavirus. And as a precaution, they just scrapped the whole three-game series against the Yankees, which would be played out at City Field, which was what they had to do. Totally understandable. And right now, as it is, what is it, almost noon here on Monday the 24th, that all the Met players are negative. You would think they're going to resume their season starting tomorrow against the Miami Marlins, which is the team that they were supposed to play on Thursday down in Miami. So they'll be back up here to play a series where the Mets hope to bounce back after winning three games down there. And 
ironically, they're going to play the Yankees this upcoming weekend. No, not to make up those three games that they lost over the weekend, but the actual three scheduled games that were to be played at Yankee Stadium. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But now with the Mets, 12-14, and 14, the National League East is a mess right now. We get that the Marlins are in second place, but only by percentage points. The Braves, who lost a crazy game there last night, uh, that led to a play at the plate to end the game. And then you also had the situation where the Nationals are not going to have Steven Strasburg for the rest of the year. He's going to go down. He had his uh, arm trouble going back to the start of this summer camp and also the start of the season. And when you look at the National League East, it's just a jumbled mess. And whomever's going to be the one to bring in reinforcements, whether it's the August 31st deadline for the Braves, a player to fill in for Mike Soroka, who's gone for the rest of the year with that torn Achilles, or even the Phillies, as they brought in a few relievers over the past week, especially the ones from Boston, whether your name is Brandon Workman, Heath Hembry. They also got another reliever from another team, so they're trying to do their best because their ERA bullpen is over eight prior to that trade. Could you imagine an ERA over eight? That's what the Phillies have to contend with as far as their bullpen goes. And if you're the Mets right now, you're still in the mix. But as a Mets fan, am I holding out hope? Maybe a sliver. But you know how cynical I am and with the way the Mets team has been. And speaking of closers, now we have to deal with Seth Lugo being part of the starting rotation with all the injuries and everything that's happened with the Mets here. David Peterson on the IL. We know about Michael Walker not coming back. And they don't really have reinforcements down in their taxi squad, their extended team with the way the rosters are now in this sprint of a season that they're going to stretch Seth Lugo out to be a starter. And to me, that's going to end up being disastrous. And it actually comes across as desperate, if you ask me. So when you have that to deal with, and now you have the closer in the ninth inning is going to be Edwin Diaz as his official. That is going to be a recipe for disaster. And I got news for you. If it rears his ugly head in the next few days against the Marlins, and especially over the weekend against the Yankees, where you're not going to see Jacob DeGrom or Garrett Cole, we're not going to see that matchup. You're probably going to see a lot of high-scoring games, as you're going to have guys like Rick Porcello and Jordan Montgomery start these games. Jay Happ, it's going to be, you would think, a high-scoring affair all three games. And at some point, if the Mets have a lead in the ninth inning, you're going to see Diaz in a big spot against a Yankee team, which is depleted right now. Gleyber Torres had to go on the IL. We know about LeMahieu. Aaron Judge may actually come back tomorrow in Atlanta against the Braves. You know about Stanton. They've had all these players on the IL, but even then, they are the Mets, and they always reinvent and find ways to lose these games. So, And then with the Yankees, they are, haven't played since being swept by the Rays, who are right now in first place, and will go through the lay of the land in Major League Baseball as we get to the second half, which is kind of crazy to even say. There you go. You got some more drilling for you there, guys, in the background. So you have Tampa leading the American League East, who did a phenomenal job at Yankee Stadium. And as we know, they're a team that is pretty much resourceful from the standpoint of 1 through 25. It's not as if they have superstars on their team, or they do have very good pitching and a very good bullpen, but they don't have anybody that's flashy. They don't have anybody that's going to stick out as far as who the top player on the team is, because a lot of people would think Charlie Morton is that guy. And we're not even talking about Blake Snell, who won a Cy Young two years ago. So Tampa Bay, they're totally going to do it from a team effort, unlike the Yankees with all the star power that they have. The Central is looking to shape up pretty well here. Now, remind you, the top two teams in each 
division are going to make the postseason. So you're going to have a fight to the finish between the White Sox, who had won seven in a row prior to losing yesterday to the Cubs. They've been mashing home runs left and right. Jose Abreu actually hit four home runs and four straight at-bats, which tied a record. And the White Sox, who a lot of people thought were going to be a sexy pick with all the young players on that team, the Yoan Moncadas of the world, the Luis Roberts, the Eloy Jimenez. We know about the imports that they had with the Osmani Grandals and the Dallas Keikos of the world. So the White Sox are looking to put not only their fingerprints in Major League Baseball, but even in Chicago, because with them and the Cubs being at the top of each of their divisions in the American and National League, who knows if we could get to see a Windy City Series, which would be pretty fascinating to the diehard baseball fan, maybe not to the casual fan. So you have the Twins at the top spot in the Central, and the Indians and White Sox, they're all separated by two games. Out West, Oakland still performing at a high clip there, 20-9. and Still ahead of the Astros. And the Astros got swept in San Diego. The Astros have certainly come back from their atrocious start. But they right now are looking at the second seed. But right now second place for them will be good. Because they'll make the postseason with that. The rest of the division has just fallen apart. Whether you're in Texas with the Rangers. Obviously the Angels are awful. And even though the Mariners have been bad. Despite them winning a series and sweeping a series over the weekend. But Houston right now will be in good shape to make the postseason, even if Oakland goes ahead and wins the division, which it looks like will be the case. I mentioned the National League East. That's just one big giant toss-up. You would think the Braves would come out on top just based on their track record over the last couple of years. Let's see what the Phillies do now as they rework their bullpen. And even though right now they're currently in last place, but you got to remember, the NL East is separated by four games. So you got to keep that in mind. So every team has a shot. The Central with the Cubs, as I mentioned before, they look to try to ride their hot start. And with the Cardinals trying to make up these games and with all the other teams falling apart, whether you're the Cincinnati Reds or the Milwaukee Brewers, they certainly have a good shot to go deep into October. And it's going to be amazing to see with the Cardinals because the Cardinals may be the second place team in that division and they may only end up playing 48 to 50 games. Right now, they've played 17 games where most teams have played anywhere between 27 to 29 games. And they have a lot to make up here. And I know a lot of people are going to look at them to say, wait, why do they make it to the postseason? And let's say another team who's outside of the top eight have a better record, but not the percentage points, and they don't make it to the postseason. So there's something you got to think about there down the road, but that's for baseball. And they should have decided that a while ago as far as tiebreakers are concerned, whether it's run differential or whatever, or what is the criteria to make the postseason when it comes to how many games played for a team to make it and to qualify for October. Because if everybody's played 60 or 58 or even 55, but when you have the Cardinals playing 51, but they make it to the postseason, how's that fair? And then out west, the Dodgers just keep mashing. 22-8, and eight, best record in the sport. And you got to wonder, as I said before, if this isn't going to be their season, you got to wonder when it's going to be their season. Seven straight postseasons, two World Series, heartbreak after heartbreak in this postseasons. And Mookie Betts looks like the guy that could be the NL MVP as he's been just a spark plug for that team. And we understand there's a team that plays two hours south of that that would say, no, wait, our guy's the MVP and the one Fernando Tatis Jr. And the Padres and what they've done here over the course of the last two weeks, not only being in the news, with Tatis' exploits, swinging on a 3-0 pitch, hitting a grand slam, also stealing third base when his team was up 6-0 in the fourth inning. And I've been wondering, I said it then and I'll say it now, 
The game is much different than it was back then. It's not the 1970s. It's not my daddy's baseball team. Or it's not my daddy's MLB. The game is a lot different. Teams are going to swing at 3-0. If you're down a run in the ninth inning, the first pitch you're not going to take, they're going to swing at that. It's just how baseball is played. And I don't like it, but that's just how it is. And I'm going to have to adapt to it no matter how much I dislike it. But Tatis certainly looking like right now one of the future faces and superstars of the sport right now. And look at the Giants. They've actually turned it around and played pretty well. They've won six in a row. Now, granted, they're not going to go anywhere. They're not a good team. But the one surprise is Colorado. And the only reason why I say that is because two weeks ago, they were 11-4. and four, And granted, it was only 15 games in. And we all know, even with a 60-game season, a lot could happen. Well, since then, they've only won two games. They're 2-11 and 11 since. They've fallen flat on their faces. And you would think with seven in a row in the loss column that you're not going to see them for the rest of this year. So... That's just how the sport is this year. And just in a matter of a week, anything could change. You could go from last to first and first to last, as we've seen with the team that plays out in Denver. And that's what I pretty much got at baseball. We'll certainly keep our eyes on what's going to happen here as we get into the latter part of this month, as we're just a week away from the trade deadline. We'll see what teams are going to do. And then lastly, as we get into September, the pennant races will certainly heat up and we'll Continue to keep our eye on that. Two other things before I say goodbye. The NFL, this weekend we had Earl Thomas on Friday punch a teammate. And a lot of people thought that he wasn't going to get cut only because he has a $15 million cap hit. And I believe 10 of that is in dead money to next year too because he signed that four-year deal. And for him to act that way, to punch Chuck Clark, who is actually a safety plays in the same unit secondary on that team is just, I mean, what is going through Earl Thomas's mind? Now we know he had an issue last year, I believe after a game in week 11 or during a game, whether it was on the sideline or not with Brandon Williams, where there was an altercation between Thomas and Williams. And now he has this on his resume. What makes you think three things. One, what the hell is going on with Thomas here? Did he do that on purpose? Was that calculated to maybe get out of Baltimore? Which wouldn't make sense only because the team was 14-2. You have the MVP on the team. And you would think that there's going to be Super Bowl aspirations down the road for this team. So why do something to get yourself jettisoned from Baltimore? That's number one. Number two, is he even worth signing at this point considering the way it ended in Seattle with him throwing up the bird, his middle finger at the coach? Nonetheless, as he's being carted off of the field in Arizona after a broken leg. And then now he has this incident, or really two incidents, in Baltimore. So what team wants to run the risk of signing him? And Dallas Cowboys, I'm sure. But even still, is he worth the headache? And number three, and this is even more importantly, is he still effective? I got news for you people. He's on the other side of his pro career. That's all there is to it. As you've seen last year especially in the playoff game. We all understand that he was a great safety. I'm not going to say Hall of Famer just yet. I'm sure he definitely has Hall of Fame numbers when it comes to his play. We know about the Legion of Boom, the old secondary coined by the former team with Richard Sherman, Cam Chancellor, Byron Maxwell, Earl Thomas, etc. But I don't think, not only is he worth signing, but his best days are behind him. To me, he's a guy that could, with his experience 
and his IQ could certainly be an impact on the field. But as far as the talent is concerned, as far as his speed and making that type of an impact on the game, unless he's going to play center field, which is what he's going to do at this part of his career, I don't think he's... His Pro Bowl and even more importantly, his All-Pro days are behind him. So I certainly wouldn't take a chance on him and I wouldn't expect to get the 2014 Earl Thomas on my team if I was a Dallas Cowboy or any team that was desperate to sign a veteran presence like that. So that's number one. Ron Rivera with this cancer diagnosis, just not only a tough break, just an unfortunate break for a team that's trying to change its image. Rivera, as we know, a new coach coming into this organization that has to rebrand. Also, if you want to call it reculture, this organization with everything that they've endured over the last X amount of years. And now you have Rivera, who is as tough as they come. He knows that tough days are lying ahead, but he's going to march on. So all the best goes out to Coach Rivera there in Washington. I obviously had to bring that one up. And then do we really need to hear Roger Goodell one more time have to say that we wish we would have listened to Colin Kaepernick earlier in reference to everything that he was doing back in 2016? He said that twice earlier this year, and now we have to hear it one more time when he was on that podcast, uh, Uncomfortable Conversations with a Black Man with the former player, Emmanuel Aiko. To me, it just, nobody wants to hear that. It rings hollow right now. Nobody cares. And I don't want to pick on Cadell. I understand he's easy to target and I've targeted him several times. But to go on, and I guess that's going to be the newsworthy clip from this video that he wishes he would have heard. But we heard this before. So why is this even news is beyond me. So maybe I should fault the media more than Goodell in this case because tell me something I don't know. And then lastly, the 77 positive tests that we heard over the weekend where a lot of people were holding their breaths from the New Jersey lab. Well, and this was through 11 teams. Thankfully, there were false positives. So you want to talk about Goodell and being able to exhale over his quinoa and veggie medley with the Little Caesar salad on the side, that was one missile that he certainly dodged because to have 77 positive tests, and we understand that with, what, 1,200 players in the NFL, that's just a small percentage, but two and a half weeks from today where the season will begin, it certainly does not bode well when you have those type of test numbers or those type of players from 11 teams. We're not even talking all 30. So you can imagine if the other 19 teams were involved, or really, let me do my math correct, 21 teams involved because we know there's 32 teams in the league that that would have been just tough to swallow but that's not the case we only hope and pray that the NFL will continue to lower these numbers to get close to zero if not zero and get the season off on the right foot because this is going to be one that they're going to sweat every bead from their brow to try to get through as we've witnessed what's happening here with baseball and now with NFL just two and a half weeks away, they're going to have to contend with this. And I'm sure they're not going to be out of the woods at any point from week one to Super Bowl 54. And then to wrap up here, I want to talk about Dustin Johnson for a second. Yesterday, he won the Northern Trust in Massachusetts. Another tour event, not a major as we know. He shot 30 under for the tournament. 30 under. That's right. When you're playing 18 holes... And it's generally a par 72, and you just do the math. And to shoot 30 under, only two other players in the history of the sport have done that. Two. And golf has been around for a zillion years. And he actually missed the record by one shot, which Ernie Els held many years ago. 
And if you're wondering who the third person is, it's Jordan Spieth. So obviously he did that within the last 10 years and probably even shorter than that. But the reason why I bring Dustin Johnson up is because remember a couple weeks ago at the PGA, he led going into the final round and Brooks Kepka came out and was a little spicy with his words, maybe throwing some gamesmanship or head games at him to maybe get Kepka going as he was trying to win another PGA. As we know, Kepka had won the last two. And Dustin Johnson was unable to be victorious. And with Johnson winning all these tour events, and now he's second behind Tiger Woods in the last 15 years. I believe Tiger's won 35 tour events, and Dustin Johnson's now won 22. But he only has one major victory. And that major was the U.S. Open back in 2016. So Johnson, who has been prolific winning these tournaments, and we can't lump him into the best player not to win a major, a la Ricky Fowler, Lee Westwood, Matt Kuchar, just to name a few. But because he's been so great on the course, and even Rory McIlroy came out and said that it was unfair for Kepka to throw shade at Johnson because he has won a major, even if it's only one, and he has more wins on the tour, three times as many as Brooks Kepka has, which he's 1,000% right about. But it is fascinating to know that as much of a winner that he's been over the years, he cannot win another major. Now, 2016, that's four years ago. You know, it wasn't as if he won last year, the year before that. It is four years. And Johnson, I know, has plenty of golf ahead of him. And he's won time after time after time. But it has to make you think, as great as he is, you wonder if he's ever going to be in that pantheon, I'm not going to say of Tiger or Jack Nicklaus or Sam Snead, Bobby Jones, etc. But can he be a guy like Tom Watson? Can he be a guy like Phil Mickelson? Can he be a guy that could rank as one of the top golfers of all time? And we understand it's going to be quantified by majors. And he still has plenty of time. It's not if he's on the back end of his golf career. But when you look at what he did yesterday, shooting 30 under, one of three players of all time, and knowing that he's only won one major, makes you think if he's ever going to, and you think he's going to win a few before it's all said and done, but you ever wonder with all these victories that he's ever going to be one of these top-ranked offers for his generation. Right now, just based on the numbers and the wins, yes. But if you're going to base it on the majors, no. But his story is still yet to be finished. So we'll continue to keep our finger on the pulse and see what Dustin Johnson does as the golf season moves forward. All right, let me get to my hero and zero of the week. My hero of the week is Dale Howarchuk, the longtime Winnipeg Jet, also played in Buffalo as a Sabre, continued his career in Philadelphia as a Flyer. Sadly, he passed away earlier this week at the age of 57 due to stomach cancer. And Howard Chuck was not a great player. He was an all-time great player. Averaged more than a point a game. Was part of those Winnipeg Jet teams. We get it. In the Back then, it wasn't the Western Conference. It was the Campbell Conference. When you're going up against the likes of Wayne Gretzky, when you're going up against the likes of other big teams that played back in the 80s out West, in particular Edmonton, he was going to be overshadowed and playing in a small town in Winnipeg. So for him to... Leave us at an early age, and as I've said time and time again, the sports world has just been rocked 
as far as all these untimely deaths and just just sad. What could you say? So my thoughts, prayers, condolences go out to the Howichuk family and a one day Howichuk, they called him Ducky as he passed away at the age of 57. And then my zero of the week, and this is a layup if you don't know this, you're going to know now, is former Reds announcer Tom Brenneman for his use of an anti-gay slur coming back from a commercial, no less, where the mic was on and he came out with a very derogatory comment and during the broadcast, not only sent his apology, but pretty much said, I'm not going to be hurt on Reds games anymore, which was a little brazen on his, his part. And I'm sure he knew the writing was on the wall once it was broadcast out there. And But for him to kind of do that was just very strange and very unusual as I saw the video clip with Tom Brenneman. As much as he could say, that word is not in my language. It was just, I made a huge mistake, et cetera, et cetera. But come on, Tom Brenneman. You know, whether you don't have a prejudice bone in your body, you know damn well not to say a word like that. Because once it gets broken, he got caught. And we understand if his mic wasn't on, we would never know. But it was, and he got caught. So with that, he is my zero of the week. All right, so that will do it, my good people, for episode 151 in the books. My apologies once again for all the extraneous noise, the construction, even the dog barking, which I believe is still barking as of right now next door. That shows you how thin the walls are in here in the apartment. And until I get to a studio, we won't have to worry about that. But thankfully, that's not the case each and every week. It just happens to be one of those manic Mondays outside and inside of the abode where I currently reside in. But with that being said, people, for those who haven't done so, as I say each and every week, Please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. As we know, there are zillions of podcasts out there. And in order for this one to be recognized, your contribution is just to go to wherever you listen to podcasts, whether it's on Apple, Google Play, Spreaker, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Luminary, on your phone, tablet, PC, whatever. It's real simple. All you got to do is just go ahead, click subscribe, type in a little review, give me a rating, because what that will do will increase the visibility of this podcast with all the others out there. And then on top of that, we'll generate interest for those outside who aren't familiar with this podcast, whether that is the former or current athlete, the broadcaster, the blogger, the studio host, the writer, whatever it is, so I can get a guest on. I know it's been quite some time, and I'm working behind the scenes to hustle to get somebody on to discuss what's happening in the world of sports, to get their experience, to get their insight. So I appreciate everybody's patience in getting that second podcast, which usually airs on Thursday, but if you could subscribe, rate, and review your boy Jay Reels will sincerely appreciate it. And also, if you want to follow me on any of my social media accounts, please feel free to do so, whether it's on Instagram, Jay Reels, or the Jay Reels Podcast, which is Strictly Sports. On Twitter, Jay Reels 1, just a number. On Facebook, the Jay Reels Podcast fan page. And if you want to send me a question, comment, criticism, praise on any of my aforementioned social media accounts, you could also send me an email the old-fashioned way at the Jay Reels Podcast at gmail.com. Again, I'm open to anything what you guys have to say. I'll be more than happy to follow up with you. And then lastly, for those who want to support my endeavor to produce a better podcast, whether it's to upgrade a little bit of equipment or to go ahead and add more to the website, production, everything that has to do to support my work, you could do so at www.patreon. That's P as in Peter, A-T as in Tom, R-E-O-N as in Nancy.com slash the J Reels podcast. Anything you want to contribute I will sincerely appreciate and show support of gratitude as I try to expand that Patreon account for more people who do want to sign up and support my work. I may have a few exclusives, a few different things. 
that I want to work with, with people who do support my work. So hopefully once I get that off the ground, thanks to your help, uh, you'll be sure that in the near future you'll, you'll hear some more news in reference to that. Because whether it's your first time listening in, your 10th, your 50th, 100th, or 150th, this is what I love to do. This is what I love to talk about. It's been ingrained since birth because I truly love to discuss anything that's happening on the world of the diamond, the world of the ice, the world of the gridiron, the world of the hardwood, the golf course, racetrack, tennis court, you name it. From my lips to your ears, from my heart to your soul, from where I am to wherever you are, the j Rose Podcast always comes correct, direct, and in full effect. From the South Bronx to South Beach to South Central to South Pacific and all points beyond. Peace, love, and God bless everybody. And until next time on the J Reels Podcast, on the flip, baby. <laughs>